Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for joining me for the next episode in our year-end toolkit series, a series of episodes designed to help you through the year-end closing process. And even if you're not currently in the close, don't change the channel. This information is relevant no matter when your year-end occurs, and some of this advice may help you get ahead in your process. This week, we're focused on the statement of cash flows, which is always one of our most popular topics. In fact, last year's cash flow episode was our most popular episode of 2022. Why so much interest in cash flows? Well, in many cases, as we know, the statement of cash flows is done after the other financial statements and disclosures and doesn't always get the attention it deserves. And as the world around us continues to become more complex, the complexity of the statement of cash flows is consequently also increasing. So you want to stay tuned. When there are significant transactions, always a good idea to like think about the cash flow treatment real time when you're doing the accounting, because the accounting kind of drives the cash flow t- treatment. So it's good to do it when the details are all still fresh in their mind. That was my guest, Suzanne Stefani, a National Office Specialist on the Statement of Cash Flows. And she's here to discuss the impact of current macroeconomic events on this very important statement. So with that, let's get started. Welcome, Suzanne. So nice to have you back on the podcast. And for our listeners' benefit, I will share that this is, I think, the third year we've done this cash flow year end episode. And I have to say it's always one of our most popular podcasts of the year. So Suzanne, thanks for being back to share more cash flow wisdom. All right. So Suzanne, I know that we often uh, look for top five or top 10 lists and for the benefit of our audience. Also, Suzanne's the webcast producer. And so she and I are very into these lists. However, she came up with an odd number for us today. She has seven reminders for year end. So we'll run through those and see what companies need to think about. All right. So Suzanne, let's get going. And one of the trends that I've spent some time talking with our other guests about relates to rising interest rates. And I know those really are making financing in particular a challenge. And we've seen some turning to factoring their AR as a way to accelerate cash receipts or mitigate exposure to counterparty risk or just really to manage cash flows. I know, though, people may not be as familiar with this. So how do you think about this in the cash flow statement? Yeah, so we are seeing more companies kind of look to different ways to, um, you know, conserve their cash or be smarter about their cash. And one way is they sell AR. So like a true sale of AR, where the AR comes off the books. That's what I'm talking about. So usually when that happens, you you know, you sell AR, but you don't get the whole purchase price in cash up front on the sale date. You get just a portion of it up front, and then they get a receivable for the difference. And then any repayment on that receivable is contingent on collections of that sold AR. So it's us- that's usually called deferred purchase price or DPP. So on the cash flow statement, I'll just try to use like a simple example to illustrate. So if you sell AR, say for $100, let's say you get $90 cash up front and $10 in that deferred purchase price kind of receivable. So on the sale date, the initial upfront cash received, so 90, is an operating inflow. And then that additional 10, that receivable, is going to be a non-cash investing transaction for the DPP. And then 
Afterwards, if you get any payments you receive on that DPP after the sale date, any inflows are going to be investing. All right. So, Suzanne, that seems relatively straightforward. However, I know that you know you describe this as a sale of AR, and in most of these structures, we don't have that one-time sale, but instead we have sort of a revolver where there's upfront funding, and then you continue to sort of roll new AR in and get cash out. And so that can get a lot more tricky. So can you describe sort of that more typical type of structure? Yeah. So like what I just described sounds pretty easy, right? But it's never, well, almost never usually just a one-time transaction. Like you said, it's revolving. So where many transactions are kind of going in and out like almost every day. So if I kind of walk through a, a typical program, the company, you know, they first get into this program, they're going to sell a bunch of AR to like a bank or a conduit. And on that day, on the first day, there is an, usually an upfront cash payment received from the bank for that initial sale. And usually it, that's the only time that the bank's going to like put cash up front for an AR sale. After that first day, that's when it starts to get kind of complex because one, cash is constantly being collected from the AR that was sold and the company keep selling more AR into that program. But the thing is, at that point when they're selling more AR, usually the only cash available to buy that AR is going to come from collections on previously sold AR. So the bank isn't putting up any more of its own cash into the program. So that means there's a lot of transactions going on, commingled, sales, collections. And then what happens is the bank usually only settles it up maybe like once a month. And there's like maybe a net check or some net wire or something for the net activities. So, of course, that can make the cash flow super complex because there's lots of things going on. All right. So then it's already complex enough. And now you're going to introduce the cash flow to that. So how do you reflect all of this in the cash flow statement? Yeah. So one, it wouldn't be appropriate just to record that like net amount that you get from the bank if it's a check or something like that. You can't just put that net amount there. You need to actually look at it, unfortunately, a unit of account on a daily basis to figure out what portion of that net check is really cash for new AR sales, what portion is collections on DPP, and what portion is really, well, non-cash where it's, you know, that receivable. So to do this, unfortunately, like I said, you have to look at each day's activity as a unit of account. So let's say you get a log for the day of the activity. You'll see, you'll look at the amount of AR that's sold for the day, the amount of collections on that same day for any AR that was you know, previously sold, and you, that's how you're going to determine the cash flow for that day. So first, any cash received would be applied to that day's sales of new receivables, so operating. If there's anything left over after applying to the new AR sales, any excess is going to be considered a payment on that DPP or receivable, so investing. But you could have a situation where you actually sell more AR on that day than cash that was collected. And in that case, that excess would be a non-cash transaction DPP. So you do this every day to and you kind of add it up, say it's for a month, 
to get what you would put on the cash flow statement. I know you, your face looks like you're not a, you don't like this. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, Suzanne, let me ask you because, you know, we talk about presenting things net on the cash flow statement and often if there's like fast turnover or otherwise you do just net, but is this something specific because of this type of activity that you, because there's different pieces here. It's not just sort of a net activity. Yeah, is there's that- different pieces and, um, it's it going into different categories and things like that. So this isn't doesn't isn't appropriate to net, unfortunately. All right. Well, so definitely a good reminder. And I would encourage people who have these programs to even if you think you have something more straightforward than this, listen carefully to this and, you know, think about the guidance. Yeah. And oh, just say in the financial statement presentation guide, chapter six, we do have like a whole example showing this for a period. So check it out if okay. you have this. Yes, definitely happy and to, or definitely helpful because to Suzanne's point, I was sort of making a face when she was describing it. So I think looking at an example would help everyone. All right. So then Suzanne, that was selling AR. So then let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum for a second reminder where a company's managing liquidity by using payables. And this could be using like typically a supplier finance program that's often referred to as reverse factoring or maybe structured payable. And I know that companies use these types of programs to provide their vendors with access to payment from a third party before the invoice due date. So it's really helping your supplier, you know, achieve liquidity. And these programs keep growing in popularity and continue to evolve. And in particular, I know the FASB has been focused on these because of investor focus. And so we actually, in the fourth quarter of 2022, got some new FASB guidance. So does this new guidance impact the cash flow statement? Yeah, so the new guidance doesn't actually address the cash flow statement or the accounting for any of the obligations under these programs. So it's just disclosure only, that new guidance. And really the objective, like you said, is investors are really interested in these programs because they are key to just a company's liquidity too, because in some cases they might be able to um, push the maturity of their payables out a little bit, which they, you know, helps them with their, their own cash flow. So the guidance is providing disclosures around these programs to give users transparency into what a company has. And I know this isn't um, a podcast on this issue, but I just want to give a plug. Our financial statement presentation guide again, but this time chapter 11, where we have all the details of that new ASU because there's some disclosures you're going to do in the first quarter and then there's, you know, more that will come in later. So it's good to check out. Uh, okay, so then that's good. And I will give a plug for Suzanne coming back to the podcast because in March we will be doing uh, an episode talking about yeah. this um, mm-hmm. this particular topic. But so then, Suzanne, let's go back to our topic mm-hmm. of today, which is cash flow. And so what are you supposed to do with the cash flow presentation of these programs? Yeah, so when you it, when you pay the obligations that are under these programs – like everything, the accounting for those pro- for the obligations in that program really drives the cash flow statement presentation. So again, I know this isn't a podcast on supply chain finance, but the real key accounting determination for those programs is whether the economic substance of the payable has changed so much be- for it being in the program, like maybe you've pushed payable terms out significantly or something, that the the obligations actually get treated as debt on the balance sheet. And it's you know, judgmental, it's facts and circumstances. And again, we have indicators in our presentation guide. So that's the first thing, and we're not really addressing that here. But 
So say you do that and you get to, it should be debt instead of a payable, the obligations. If the structured payables are treated like debt on the balance sheet, then for the cash flow statement, we're going to imply, apply kind of a constructive receipt and disbursement concept that we've talked about kind of in past podcasts. But basically, the bank, it's as if the bank is paying the vendor for that payable on the company's behalf, right? Almost like an agent. So first, you'd have an operating outflow for the purchase of, you know, if you bought inventory or something, and a financing inflow for the same amount, because now we have debt from the bank. And then when you ultimately pay the bank for that payable, it'd be a financing outflow. So it's just like like debt, but you have that kind of gross up at first. Um, now, on the other hand, if it just stays like a payable because they didn't do very much to the substance of that payable, then it's just an operating outflow when the company pays the bank because we don't have debt on the balance sheet. All right. Well, I will definitely say that this to me seems much more straightforward yeah. than our last one and well, honestly logical if you kind of look at the substance of what the arrangement is. Yeah. But it's just the accounting part that's judgmental. Yes, exactly. So we're only talking <laughs> yeah, about the cash We're not talking about that now. So. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So then, um, Suzanne, I know our first two topics are focused on getting more creative on how you're managing cash flows and otherwise. But then we also are seeing more companies trying to really focus on their return if they actually have cash. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of leads to more cash equivalents. So if we start to think about our third reminder is if you have these different types of alternative investments, how do you know if you have a cash equivalent or if you really have cash or maybe just an investment? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we are seeing more companies, you know, get more out of whatever kind of cash they still have left. And we're seeing more companies get into other things like treasury bills or commercial paper or money markets. So they're like investments that, you know, are somewhat liquid, so, but not obviously not as liquid as cash. So when you get into something like that, the first thing you have to do is to think about or consider whether these investments are cash equivalents or not. If they're cash equivalents, they're treated just like a cash account for purposes of the cash flow statement, right? It's part of the total amount that's reconciled at the end of the statement. So what is a cash equivalent? A cash equivalent has two characteristics. So one, it has to be highly liquid. So it has to be readily convertible to known amounts of cash at all times. It has to be short term. So that means it has to have a maturity of three months or less from the time the company purchases that investment. So if an investment meets those two characteristics, it's a cash equivalent and it'd be treated that way on the cash flow statement except with one exception. Um, not all investments that qualify, like meet that definition of cash equivalents, are required to be classified that way because there is a policy choice. A company can have a policy a ch choice around what it treats as a cash equivalent. So, for example, a company with banking operations might choose to prevent, present certain cash equivalents in, an, in the investments line. And then it would be treated like that for the cash flow statement too. So that's just one aside, right? And if and companies have to disclose their policy around um, what they call cash equivalents. 
So Suzanne, let me ask you a question on this because you emphasize the word uh, maturity of three months or less from the time it was purchased. Mm -hmm. And for the benefit of our listeners, the notes we have also has purchased bold and underlined. And I know sometimes a question does come up of like, well, I don't plan to hold them for more than three months, even if it's like 180 mm -hmm. days or otherwise. Yeah, yeah. So is does that work or no? No, it's just contractual maturity. So yeah, like, sure, you might have an intent to sell it off in a month or something. But if the contractual maturity of that security is, say, you know, um, six months or something from the time you purchased it, it could not be a cash equivalent. Okay. I think that's a good reminder because I remember having that, I'll call it debate, oh. uh, with my clients okay. back in the day when I was an auto partner. Oh, okay. Okay. So then let's go back to determining so then another question that comes yeah. up if we're trying to think about the definition of a cash equivalent would be like money market funds. Mm -hmm. And I know there's often a question there and a lot of companies hold money market funds, but then the underlying investments in that fund, you know, may or may not meet the criteria. So how do you think about it if you are holding those types of investments? Yeah. Cause like, like you said, the money market fund, you have an interest in the money market fund, but it has all these investments underneath. So how do you know, um, you know, if they're all kind of short term and, and meet that maturity criteria. So if the fund meets all of the criteria, sorry, all the qualifying criteria for a money market fund under the 1940 Act, then it's automatically going to be a cash equivalent or meets the requirement. But if it doesn't meet that, if those requirements, then you have to dig a little, little deeper. One, you can look at the funds policy. The funds policy has to require the weighted average maturity of the securities held not to exceed 90 days. I usually start with that because you'll see, sometimes they'll say they, I don't know, something like they try to keep a weighted average maturity. That's not required. So it has to require um, to fall into cash equivalents. And then there's others like the investor has to have the ability to redeem the fund's shares daily and the fund's investment attributes are consistent with an SEC registered money market fund. But like I said, I always kind of start with that first one about their policy. All right. Well, first, I guess, start with 1940. Yeah. And yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Policy. yeah. Exactly. Okay. So then, Suzanne, you already told us that if it is a cash equivalent and you're treating it that way, then you would treat it just as part of cash on the cash flow statement. Mm -hmm. But what about the case if it's not a cash equivalent? Yeah. So if it's not a cash equivalent, then you have to show all the purchases and sales on the cash flow statement. So, so we get questions, you know, how do you classify that on the cash flow statement? It's not all just automatically investing, right? You have to look at what the investment is. So if you have a debt security and if it, it's a classified as available for sale or held to maturity, then the purchases and sales are investing cash flows. Now, if you have an equity security or a debt security that's classified as trading, it depends on the company's plans for the investment. It can be either operating or investing. So if you buy it with the initial objective of generating profits on short-term price changes, then it's operating when you buy it and, and sell it. If your strategy is not to actively buy and sell those securities with objectives of you know, generating a profit, then it'd be investing when you buy it and when you sell it. All right. So then it's very important to know, to start with what exactly it is you're presenting. Make sure you separate your different types of investments and then listen to the guidance that Suzanne yeah. just gave us. So again, it's accounting driving the um, cash the flow, cash flow yeah. which is logical. Yeah. So, all right. 
So then let's move on to our fourth reminder. And this is another one where I know we continually get questions and that's on foreign currency. And lots of companies have foreign currency, but we've definitely been seeing many, many more fluctuations in foreign currency this year. And because of inflation, maybe the currency has less purchasing power and exchange rates are changing and otherwise. So Suzanne, what are we thinking about with all of this in the cash flow statement? Yeah. So like you said, there's more, just seeing more volatility in FX rates, I think, because of inflation here this year. And there's really, there's no new guidance or anything different to apply this year. And it's just that volatility is just causing FX impacts to be bigger this year. Like maybe in the past it wasn't material, so there wasn't a lot of questions, but, but just, you know, seeing more questions this year. So we want to cover it. Um, I guess we'll start with just some key, really basic reminders, right? So we all know exchange rate changes, they're going to have a direct impact on the ultimate amount of cash that I receive or pay, for sure. But those exchange rate changes don't result in cash flows themselves, right? They have to be adjusted for in the cash flow statement in two ways. So one, you know, as you remeasure things and as you, you know, have transactions, you're going to have FX gains and losses, and it's going to be part of net income. So those have to be backed out in the reconciliation to net income, the operating cash flows. Just got to back them out because they're not real cash flows. And then the second thing is you ha- if you have cash accounts that are not in the reporting currency, the effect of exchange rate changes on those cash accounts have to be adjusted too, but outside of the three buckets. So it's not going to be an operating, investing, or financing um, cash flow. It's like a separate line item. We kind of call it like a fourth category down at the bottom as part of the reconciliation of changes in cash during the period. All right. And so Suzanne, normally here on the podcast, we don't do examples because they're kind of hard to follow. But yeah. in this case, I think it's worth it for us to try to go through a simple example. All right. I'll try. And I'll just do like one transaction to try to illustrate this. So, okay, here we go. So say we have a company, like it's Functional currency is the U.S. dollar. There's no foreign subs or anything. For the whole period, we just have one FX transaction. We took out a euro-denominated loan debt. And we have a euro-denominated bank account for some reason. Okay. So for the FX-denominated loan, when we borrow the money, we record that in U.S. dollars based on the exchange rate at the issuance date. Then at the period end, we have two things. We have a monetary liability, the euro-denominated loan. We're going to remeasure it, you know, for the balance sheet using period end, using the period end rate. Let's just say we have an FX loss of 50000 in that period because the exchange rate went up, right? So we record that in the P&L. Then we've got the euro cash account, the monetary asset, and again, we're going to remeasure that too at the period end rates. And let's just say we have an FX gain of 300000 So we have the only transactions, right? So we have a net FX gain of 250000 in the P&L. Okay. So now we get to the cash flow statement. And, you know, we're doing the indirect method because that's what most people do. <laughs> um, so, again, the loan's the only transaction, the only cash flow. So in the reconciliation of net income to operating cash flows, you know, it starts with net income. So that's 250000 my FX gain. I have to back out that whole gain because, again, it's not a cash flow, the whole two fifty. So it gets me to no operating cash flows at all, zero. The only cash flow I have in this whole cash flow statement is a financing inflow, 
for the original issuance of the debt, you know, just using the original amount recorded, that, that, that spot rate on the transaction date. We'll assume no other payments. So that's all we had. And it's, I'm just trying to illustrate what's getting backed out. Right. But so then, Suzanne, you mentioned that my, my bank account mm-hmm. went up by 300000 Yeah. Um, like U.S. dollars. And we have not accounted for that anywhere. So our cash flow statement is not going to balance. We don't bring that in. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where that like fourth category I mentioned comes in, right? So that, sh- that 300000 you're on backing it out of net income. And it's going to go into that fourth category called effects of exchange rate changes on cash and cash equivalents. You know, if the company did not adjust that 300 cash, 300,000 um, gain in the reconciliation to net income, say they just forgot to do that, the cash flow would work, but it'd come out, that would show up as an operating cash flow. And it's not, right? And so that's, we were getting some questions in that area. And like I said, maybe it was like small before, so people didn't really focus on it. But we just wanted to kind of illustrate that just to, to point that out because now the fluctuations are a little bit more. All right. So Suzanne, I think that's a really good reminder because to your point, I do think a lot of companies in the past, maybe this was immaterial mm-hmm. to separate out. So that's helpful. But I also know that it's more complicated if you're dealing with an actual like foreign operations and a foreign subsidiary. So how do you think about that? Yeah. So definitely more complex, right? So if you're a company, you know, you're a US dollar reporting currency, but you have a foreign sub that has a different functional currency. Currency. Then there's kind of three steps you go through to prepare your cash flow statement. So one, you would prepare that sub's cash flow statement in the sub's own local functional currency. You do that. That's step one. Okay. Step two is you translate that statement into the parent's reporting currency. So to translate, you'd use FX rates in effect at the time of the transaction to translate. But if cash flows and FX rates are pretty consistent during the period, you can use the average rate for those periods. But what we want to caution here is just with this volatility now, sometimes the average rate doesn't really approximate the, um, the rate at the transaction date. And for sure, generally not appropriate for like large and infrequent investing in finance transactions like PPE or, or debt. All right. So Suzanne, so far, so good. So the key there is to make sure that the average rate still works for the translation. But now I have to figure out how to bring this individually translated cash flow statement into the parent. And, you know, sort of on the surface, it seems straightforward, but I know it gets complicated when we're trying to calculate the effect of exchange rate changes on the cash balance. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely gets more complex. So like in my earlier example, it's pretty easy, right? To just figure out what the FX exchange was on that your own denominated cash. But when you're consolidating and you've got lots of things going on, it's definitely more complex. So there's two things you have to do. So first, we have to calculate the impact of the exchange rate changes on the net cash flow activity for the period. So basically, you have to go back to the cash flow statement that you prepared in the subs functional currency. So my step one from before, take that net cash flow activity number for the period from that statement and multiply it by the exchange rate at the end of the period. So you come up with that number with the period end rates. Then you compare that to the net cash flow activity reported in the translated cash flow statement. So my step two from before. Note that difference, whatever that difference is, write it down, put it aside. 
And then the next step is you calculate the effect of exchange rate changes on the beginning hash balance. So take the difference between the ending FX rate and the beginning period FX rate, get that difference, and apply it to the beginning cash balance in the local you know, functional currency. Come up with that amount, and now you, have, you add them together. So basically you add the, the amount, the impact of the net cash flow activity and the impact on the beginning cash balance. You add those two together that you just figured out, and that's the effect effect of exchange rates on cash and cash equivalents in that fourth category I spoke about earlier. But yeah, don't worry. There is a detailed example in our FSP guide because like, I don't know if people can follow from me saying it. Yeah, so. no, I think it's definitely helpful to walk through. But definitely if you're dealing with this situation, I know that example in the FSP guide is, is very helpful and we'll yeah. make sure to link that in the show notes. Yeah. All right. So then, Suzanne, one of the topics I spoke about last week when I was um, I did a podcast with the deputy chief accountants with some year end reminders was that in these types of economic conditions, we may be seeing pressure on margins and then that ultimately triggers restructuring and that in turn can cause more questions on disc ops in the cash flow statement. So Beth Paul mentioned that there's some elections here, but she did not go into detail last week. So you're here today to fill us in on that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple of choices, accounting policy elections on the cash flow statement, if you have a discontinued operation. So one option is you can break out on the, on the face of the cash flow statement, you can present total operating and investing cash flows from disc ops, like right on the face, right? So you have continuing ops and disc ops. And you can also present you know, financing activities from discops if you want. You don't have to. That's not required, but you can definitely do it. So that's one option. So like on the face is one one choice. The second choice is just disclose. In a, so have your cash flow statement, like with all your cash flows for the whole entity, and just disclose in a footnote. You can either disclose total operating and investing cash flows from discops, or you can even just disclose depreciation, amortization, capex, and significant non-cash um, operating and investing activities related to disc ops. Whatever choice you do, so on the face or in the notes, you should apply consistency consistently for all periods presented. So you shouldn't have like, maybe had like one tiny disc ops where you put in the notes mm-hmm. and now this year you have a big one and you want to put it on the face. You, you should be consistent for all periods presented. All right. So Suzanne, that was probably our most straightforward one and the easiest for people to understand. So that was number five. Uh, So let's move on to our other two. And number six is actually the flip side of the disc ops, which would be the company buying the businesses being sold. And those often result in different types of cash flows and different types of questions. The first one relates to contingent consideration from the buyer's perspective. So this would be the company that bought the disc ops and then, or bought the business and then um, is paying it to the seller. How do you classify that? Yeah, when it's paid. So um, on the acquisition date, just to kind of back up, right? A liability, the buyer is going to set up a liability for the fair value of the contingent consideration that it thinks it's going to pay. Um, and it gets remeasured each period until the contingencies are resolved. So when the payment's ultimately made to the seller, the classification of the payment depends on two things, timing from the date of acquisition and how the amount compares to um, the original liability. So if you pay it within three months of the acquisition date, that's considered soon after and the whole payment would be investing. But if it's after a 
three months, any amount up to the original liability that was recorded on day one would be financing. And then any payment over that original liability that was recorded on the acquisition date would actually go to operating. All right. So that's actually, again, fairly straightforward. You just know how many, how long has it been? And then you look at the guidance. So mm-hmm. that one is helpful. So let me go through another potential scenario where that we often see, which is when the acquirer pays off the seller's debt in conjunction with the business combination. I know that can get a little tricky. Yeah. So it depends, right? Of course. On, <laughs> depends on whether the the buyer legally assumes that debt or not. So if the buyer actually legally assumes the seller's debt, then usually like in BISCOM accounting, right, they're going to record that debt at fair value on the on the balance sheet, on the acquirer's balance sheet as a liability assumed in the acquisition, right? It's like the purchaser bought a business that's encumbered by that debt. So when they pay that debt off, when the when the buyer pays that debt off, it's just a financing cash flow. It's just like any other debt because since they acquired it, it's now their legal obligation. So it's not part of consideration paid. Um, now, I think the more one that we more commonly see is that the buyer does not legally assume the debt, but they might pay the seller's bank off directly, right? Instead of giving the money to the seller and the seller gives it to the bank, the buyer is going to pay the bank directly. So in those cases, if they're not legally assuming the debt, then any funds paid to the seller's bank would be just like part of consideration. It'd, It'd be an investing outflow. It's like the buyer paid the seller's debt on their behalf. All right. That one's also fairly straightforward, although you yeah. you definitely have to make sure you understand your transaction. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So then, Suzanne, my final reminder question for today is just I know that you get a lot of questions about cash flows probably on like February 21st, 2nd, 3rd. 27th, uh-huh. 28th. And so I really, there is this trend of cash flow questions coming up at the very, very, very tail end. And so what have you seen that, you know, is a best practice? And some of them may be obvious, but I think it's always still helpful to give a reminder, especially this time of year. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so we kind of get the cash flow questions, like you said, kind of late in the quarter close process. And I think it might be sometimes because cash flow reporting isn't always top of mind during the quarter. It's rather something someone might think about just during the close. And that can cause issues or, of course, like last minute surprises. Um, So I think just general reminder, maybe can't do it for this year end because it's too late. But when there are significant transactions, always a good idea to think about the cash flow treatment real time when you're doing the accounting because the accounting kind of drives the cash flow treatment. So it's good to do it when the details are all still fresh in their mind. And also, because sometimes if you leave it to the end with the close, the person who's doing the cash flow statement might not um, be the same person who did the accounting. They might not be as clear on the details, which you really need to you know, properly classify the cash flow. So just always a good idea, like with anything probably, right? But to get ahead of it and, and really do it in real time. All right, that's great. And to your point, it may be too late for this year to do that for the transactions during the year, but it's still not too late to do it in January instead mm-hmm. of waiting until February. And you can put in a new process for 2023. New Year's resolution. Exactly. I love those and I know you like them too. Yeah. So Suzanne, we 
are changing up our final questions this year and decided to at least sometimes get away from Stump the Guest just to change things. So what I was thinking about specifically for you is if whether you have a hidden talent that you would like to share with our audience. Um, yeah, I'd say I, over the lockdowns for COVID and everything, I started to learn to crochet. I got a book and then like a lot of YouTube videos and I kind of think I'm pretty good at it. I make bags. Um, I like to make these little toy dogs, stuffed animals of people's dogs. Um, so yeah, I'm, I think I'm getting good at it and I quite enjoy it. It's a good, um, it's just a good thing to do kind of to take your mind off other things, almost a therapy. So yeah, I would say I do that. Right. And I will vouch for Suzanne's talent. The reason I asked her the question is she makes beautiful blankets, bags, and these <laughs> little dogs are adorable. So Thank definitely, you. like I said, a hidden talent. And uh, thanks for sharing that with us. Sure. And of course, thanks for sharing all your knowledge about cash flow statements. Sure. So thanks for being here. Thanks. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.